0: Good morning. It is always my privilege to read scripture. This morning, it is also my challenge. Mm -hmm. Before I read this long list of names, I would encourage you to think of this beyond a long list of names because God has adopted us into his family as his sons and daughters through Jesus. And so think of the beauty of this list. It is our family tree as well. Please stand while I read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan. Emethon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: (laughs) You may be seated. It's an appropriate reaction. Thank you, Carol, for reading that so that I didn't have to. And welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you and good to be with you. Today as we start our Advent series, my name is Jonathan Mosier and it's my privilege to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you, so if you're not already there and haven't been paying close attention, Matthew chapter 1 this morning, Matthew chapter 1. I'll venture that for many, if not most, of, if not all of us, uh, this is probably the first time you've heard a genealogy read in church, that's certainly probably an exception for some of you, but this is one of those texts that is typically kind of skipped over or passed over in the life of the church, even around this time of the year, the time of the Advent. And when we sing or talk about that word Advent, we had it in one of our songs that we sang today, we, we talk about it this time of year, that word Advent literally means arrival that all of history up to the point of Jesus Christ's birth had been leading up to the coming of the Messiah, that everything that had happened to that point was just paving the way for God Himself to enter into the darkness of the world, to bring light into the darkness, to bring salvation to those who were lost, to bring reconciliation to those who had been warring against Him. And so there is a lot to celebrate as we think about that concept of Advent, that concept of the arrival, and there's a lot to celebrate as we look at Matthew chapter 1. But truthfully, genealogies are perhaps the most overlooked portions of Scripture, at least for modern Western readers, for people like you and me. And for some of us, you just when you think about genealogies, you just think about it as the, the graveyard for your best aspirations to read the Bible through in a year. You get to 1 Chronicles and you start reading chapter 1 and you're working strong, and then chapter 2 and chapter 3, and by the time you get to chapter 9, your whole year has been derailed. And for others, genealogies are kind of this idea of a spiritual equivalent of eating your vegetables. You know that on some level it's probably a good thing for you to read but you don't exactly enjoy it. But part of what makes all of this difficult for us is that Matthew begins this book in a way that is completely different than how the other gospel writers begin theirs. Mark, if you remember back to when we began that series, is so fast-paced that he skips over the whole birth narrative of Jesus Christ. He jumps right into the preaching of John the Baptist and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so you you get this, this idea, this constant urgency as you read the book of Mark. If you begin to read the book of Luke, what you find is that Luke is trying to build the historical narrative. He's trying to give the evidence for who Jesus Christ is based on all of these interviews that he had had. John takes an entirely different approach and he gives us a theological treatise regarding the coming of Jesus as the Word, that the Word was with God and the Word was God, this idea of the pre-existent Jesus Christ, one with the Father and with the Spirit before time itself, setting His love and His affection on us. But Matthew starts with a genealogy. Timothy, if you remember the series that we just finished, warned against those who are going to fixate on endless genealogies, but here's the truth of the matter for us. For many of us, our Christmas season starts with Luke chapter 2, or it starts with Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, but certainly as God was giving His Word, inspired, perfect, inerrant to those who were writing it, certainly in His providence, He included them for a very particular reason, for our benefit, our growth, and our encouragement. So remember, as we read this, that Matthew's original audience was Jewish. These were people who had been inundated with the Old Testament Scriptures from the earliest moments of their memory. These were people who loved the Scripture. They loved the promises that were given to them about the Messiah that was going to come. They knew the promises about the Messiah. They were awaiting His coming. They were praying for His arrival. They were anticipating God to send the Messiah. But. But as Matthew writes it, so many of that audience had missed the arrival of the Messiah that they so desperately wanted to see. And so Matthew wants to give them and ultimately us as well the evidence that Jesus in fact is the Messiah, the awaited one, the arrived one by virtue of his legal royal lineage that he had an inheritance that originally belonged to Abraham and to David and now belonged to him and that by virtue of his line he was in fact the one true Christ, the Messiah. And the underlying message of these 17 verses are clear to us. This Jesus... This descendant of these generations of Hebrew people was the one true, the verifiable fulfillment of God's promise to give His people a deliverer. This was the one who could set His people free from the chains of sin. The futility of the law and the penalty of death This Jesus was the only one who could be both the fulfillment of God's promise to his forebears as well as the source of their redemption. That is an amazing thing to see in the life and person of Jesus Christ. And I think it's hard for us on so many levels as we consider this idea of the God-man, that thing that we just confessed together, the idea of the God-man, it's so hard for us to hold those ideas in tension in our mind because the tendency for us is to either emphasize Jesus' deity or his humanity at the expense of the other. So here's how that typically looks for us, at least again in in Western Christian church today. Within conservative Orthodox Christianity, our tendency most often is to emphasize Jesus' deity. We understand Him as a righteous and holy person. We understand His identity as the, as the second member of the Trinity. We understand, his, we understand His place in history. But what we tend to lose is all of the ways that Jesus experienced what we experience in our humanity. We tend to miss that Jesus had a family and relationships. We miss that Jesus had joy and laughter that he had sadness and anger, that he experienced temptations and triumph. And so for some, their tendency then is to put the emphasis on the other side of the scale, particularly within so-called progressive Christianity. They tend to emphasize his humanity, his human characteristics, over his deity. So Jesus, to them, becomes an example of charity and kindness and acceptance and activism, but they lose His righteousness, His holiness, His grace, and His substitutionary atonement on our behalf. But in this genealogy, dry as it may seem to our Western eyes, we see an encapsulation of His deity and His humanity. You see, Jesus didn't just happen upon the scene when He arrived 2,000 years ago. He didn't just drop out of the sky and begin sharing sage bits of wisdom to whomever might hear. No, he was born as an infant to a family, dependent on his mother to feed him, dependent on his parents to raise him, dependent on his father to train him in the family business. But he also was not just another child who happened to grow up to be the Messiah. No, his earthly line was predestined, determined by God, carefully woven together by sovereign decree and gracious providence. And in that tapestry, what we begin to see is the intricate handiwork of an almighty God to redeem princes and paupers, priests and prostitutes, the sanctimonious and skeptics alike through Jesus Christ. And all of those elements are present in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus redeemed His rebellious lineage, and in so doing, as Carol mentioned, He created a whole new spiritual family. Well, how did He do that? Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob. Now if we were trying to put together a lineage for the Messiah, if the task was given to us prior to the coming of Jesus Christ and we were asked, who do you think ought to belong in the lineage of the coming Messiah? Who are you going to put in his family tree? Undoubtedly, the four names that were given in these first verses would be at the very top of that list. And it starts out with the mention of Abraham the father of the nation of Israel. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as a man of great faith. We find chapters, plural, devoted to him and his story in the book of Genesis. He's referenced as the father of the nation of Israel, as this great historical figure, as a great man of faith throughout his life. He was given a charge from God to leave his homeland, the the place of his forefathers, and to go out into unknown territories to follow what God had called, called him to do. For some reason reasons that only God Himself knows, God determined to set His love and His affection on this man named Abraham. And He made a covenant with Abraham, a promise to him, that's given to us in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, which reads this way. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation." and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an amazing, incredible promise. I mean, we think about our lives and we think about how temporary they are. The Bible describes that our life is like a vapor. And so think about that just for a minute in your own background, in your own history. Certainly, you know the names of your parents, most likely the names of your grandparents. For some of you, it starts to get a little bit fuzzy around the names of your great-grandparents. But for most of you, if we were to go back about six or seven generations, you might not be able to give us the name of anyone. But Abram has promised from God himself, through your family, every family in the world, in the history of time, will receive blessing. And notice the nature of the blessing that God promises. It's a blessing of blessings. That Abraham's offspring were going to be as the sands of the seashore, as the stars of the sky, that through all your line, the families of all the earth shall be blessed. And as the line of Abraham continues to continues to progress further and further down the line. We find ultimately it reaching kind of a pinnacle, but not quite because we know the pinnacle is Jesus himself, but it, it reaches a peak certainly at the life of David. We find this promise given ultimately then to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. Here's this descendant of Abraham following down the line, and the Lord declares, verse 11, to you that the Lord will make you, David, a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and listen, I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Now, How in the world could God have actually made that promise to David? Because as we stand right now, there is a national Israel, and there is no king over that nation, and there is no king that is a direct descendant from the line of David. But here's what we know about David. We know that he was a great king of Israel, that he was the great warrior poet whom the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. His life was so defined by his affection and his love for God and his love for the law of the Lord that he was determined to have a a heart like God's. And God promises David that because he, in his good providence and grace, set his affection on David, his kingdom would be established forever through the Messiah. See, the kingdom that still exists is the kingdom that comes through the line of the Messiah, it's a spiritual kingdom. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David are all mentioned in this text. Those men, if you were to think about them and their significance in the Old Testament, they make up the Mount Rushmore of the Hebrew faith. The most significant characters, the most impactful characters, these were the men where if you were a Jewish parent, you would look to them and say, children, would you please be like our forefather Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or David? Would you model your life after theirs? Be like them. Matthew here in this text gives gives us the royal lineage, the reason that Jesus actually has a claim to the throne. And the reason that Jesus qualifies as the Messiah. Now, if we were all given the name, if all we were given, rather, were the names of these respectable members of Jesus' lineage, we'd hardly be surprised to find them listed in this text. But what if we began to look a little bit deeper at the lives of each of these men? These men who typically are referred to as heroes of the faith. What if we considered the fact, for instance, that Abraham had a moment of serious doubt and failure, that he did not actually believe that God could provide for him a son through his aged wife, Sarah, and so he committed adultery with his servant, Hagar. What if we thought for a minute about Isaac? in Genesis chapter 26 who followed the example of his father, Abraham, and when arriving before the king of the Philistines and being asked about the identity of his wife, Rebekah, was so afraid that he would be killed or that something would happen to his wife that he lied and said, she's just my sister, not my wife. And in so doing, risked life and limb of his own wife. What if we looked at Jacob, the deceiver? who tricked his father in order to steal the birthright that belonged to his brother. And what if we looked at David, at David who failed morally, looked askance at the responsibility that was given to him expressly by God, and went to all kinds of wicked means to cover his sin. But the story doesn't end with either the successes or the failures of these four men because just as interesting, if not more interesting, are the disreputable names that are included in this text, namely those names that are given of five particular women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Mary, we're going to save for a later conversation, but right on the face of it, let's look at the inclusion of these first four women in this text, because it's interesting, if for no other reason than that they were women listed in a genealogy. I mean, this is a patriarchal society, and everything from your inheritance to your occupation to your societal standing was determined by the male lineage from which you. Descended. So if you were to look at genealogies written at this time, do you know what you find uh, missing across all of them? The names of women. And yet, in the divinely inspired word providentially given to us by God, these particular names are called out. But notice, these weren't even good Jewish women from respectable families. Somehow in God's providence, these are all Gentile pagan women who are included in the line of the Messiah. And to top it off, there was some very real scandal regarding these women. I'm going to try to be delicate, as delicate as I can while still being honest to what this text says. But let's look first at the story of Tamar. Now, you can find that story in Genesis chapter 38. You can read it on your own, but here's the long and short of it. This woman had married into the line of Judah. Remember, Judah was the tribe from which the Messiah was intended to come, and so she had married this man. He died early on in their marriage, and so she married then her younger brother, his, his younger brother rather, as was the custom of the day, and then that brother died, and soon she finds herself in a position where she has no income, no one to take care of her, no one to provide for her. She reaches out to her father-in-law, and her father-in-law says, understand this, when my youngest son comes of age, I'll send him to you to be your spouse, and then he'll provide for you. But he, he backs off on that promise. He does not honor his word. She goes out into the street. She covers her face with a veil, and this woman who, had, to this point in her life, had been mistreated by her family is mistaken as a harlot by her father-in-law who's walking down the street. They get together that day and she ends up having twin sons by her father-in-law. That is tabloid level scandal. But it makes its way into Scripture. And this woman and her son find themselves in the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You could hardly imagine a more scandalous way for the lineage of the Messiah to be continued until you keep reading the names that come next. Because the next name that's mentioned is that of Rahab and her name ought to be familiar to us. You remember her from the story of the the destruction of Jericho, the spies had gone into the land of Canaan. Here's this Canaanite woman, she's a harlot, she's a prostitute, she was a temple prostitute. Uh, She was involved directly in the worship of the false gods of Jericho and yet she finds herself interacting with these particular spies from Israel who were sent in by the Lord to see what was going on in that city and to scout it out. These spies were... We're all of a sudden on the run because those who were in leadership in in the city of Jericho discovered that there were spies in the land, and so Rahab hides them. You remember that story? And God determines to use and bless this woman whose lifestyle to this point had been marked by nothing but mistreatment and wickedness. And she becomes a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. And then we find Ruth in verse 5. Here's this woman who's a Moabite. And if you remember the Moabites, these are people who had a long-storied, violent history with the nation of Israel. These were the people who had actually brought in the false worship of other gods to the nation of Israel. They had seduced the people of Israel through the worship of their own false gods. And though Ruth's story is far less salacious than the others, do you understand that prior to her conversion, she was an outright pagan from a disreputable land until, of course, her husband died and she moved to his homeland to be with his family and began to worship the one true God. And in the Jewish mindset, it was disquieting to say the least to understand that the royal line of Israel, God's chosen people, had been tainted by the presence of a Moabite. And finally, we see in these words, Bathsheba, though her name isn't mentioned. Look at verse six. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, if you know the story of what took place, that's quite a sentence because it communicates more about Bathsheba than we even care to recognize. I mean, Matthew at this moment can't even, can't even work up the nerve to use her name or determines that, that this description of her as the wife of Uriah is the more appropriate way to describe her. She was a married Hittite woman who ended up entering into an adulterous relationship with King David while he was abdicating, abdicating rather, his God-given responsibility to lead his troops into battle, while he was violating the law that he so desperately loved, while he was committing adultery with the wife of one of his generals, and ultimately went on to have that general killed in order to cover his tracks. So from Abraham to Bathsheba, we might ask the question, what in the world did this bunch of misfits and doubters and adulterers do to deserve being in the line of Jesus? And the answer that comes back is nothing other than being the recipients of God's relentless grace. Do you understand that Jesus didn't come through this line because of their worthiness? He came through this line in spite of their unworthiness. And the same, brother and sister, is true of God's grace in your life. So hear me and understand this, your family of origin, your personal history does matter. It shapes us, it informs us, it affects us, it affects the way that we think and the way that we believe and the way that we perceive the world and the way that we interact with other people. Your family of origin is is a substantial piece of who you are and it's not to be ignored. But do you understand that because of Jesus, it is far less significant than the family into which you've been adopted? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David All of them at different points gave up on God, but He never gave up on them. He not only showed them mercy by not giving them the punishment that they deserve, but He showed them grace by giving them a place in the line of Jesus. Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba didn't end up in this line by accident. God chose Tamar. A woman who'd been abused and mistreated and in turn used deceit to get her way. God chose Rahab, a lowly Gentile prostitute who had nothing to offer God. God chose Ruth, a widowed pagan without a penny to her name. God chose Bathsheba who committed adultery while her husband was away. And here's the point. The scandalous lives of these people was no match for the scandalous grace of God. And God's grace is always scandalous because it's given freely and it's given abundantly to the least deserving and the most surprising candidates. Grace by its very nature is unexpected and unearned. We never anticipate grace or the, or the depths to which grace is willing to go because we never anticipate that God could care as much as He does for people whom we would have long ago written off. And if God was willing to have these people make up Jesus' ancestry, ancestry rather, we ought not then be surprised at who else Jesus is willing to bring in to His family. to bring in people like you and me. Because of Jesus, your sin did not deter the love of God. Your experiences do not diminish your value to God. And your past does not define your usefulness to God. Brother, sister, hear this if you hear nothing else. However deep your guilt, your shame, or your embarrassment runs, God's grace runs infinitely deeper. And I realize that for some in this room, though I don't know the stories, for some in this room, there's a part of you that may even doubt that. and that the doubts come from all kinds of different places in our hearts. For some of you it was something that happened long before you came to know Jesus Christ and you just go, I, I still 10, 20, 30, 40 years after the fact can't believe that God could actually love someone like me. How could he do it? How could he do it knowing what I've done and for others of you, your story is the opposite. You're looking at yourself and, and your story and your history and your familial experience and you're going, because I know so much about who God is and because I was raised in the church by Christian parents who loved me and because I know so much about Scripture, how in the world could God love me because I continue to fall and continue to fail? Understand, brother and sister, that there is no corner in your life into which God is scared to look. There is no experience so traumatic that He cannot bring healing. There is no doubt that He cannot overcome. There is no sin that He cannot forgive. And there is no past that He cannot redeem. The only qualifier to being a recipient of grace is to be so lowly that you need it. And we are. But conversely, the only disqualifier to receiving grace is to be so arrogant that you presume it's owed to you. See, Jesus didn't come to save the worthy. He declared worthy those who He came to save. And so to those who might be tempted to say in the moment where you find yourself right now, well, you don't know my story. God can't fix me. God can't heal me. God can't restore me. God can't use me. God responds by saying, I'm not limited by your past. I'm not limited by your pain. I'm not limited by your poor decisions. I'm not limited by your regretful mistreatment, by your missteps, or by your failure." The hope that we have is not in our ability to be sinless or faithful. The hope that we have is in the one who was sinless and always remains faithful. And the same God who promised that all nations would be blessed through the line of Abraham has made good on His promise. Through Jesus, the grace of God was extended to all people, not just the bloodline of Abraham, not just to those who were born within national Israel, but now within a whole new bloodline, the bloodline of Jesus Christ, a bloodline that creates a new people and a new ethnicity and a new family and gives you a new name and a new position and a new identity. And that includes all here who would trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead. And if you ever doubted the goodness and the mercy and the grace of our God, His invitation to you today is to look at those whom He chose, loved, forgave, and redeemed, and to see your name added to that list. So to the religious failures, the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacobs and the Davids, Jesus' invitation is, be part of my family because of what Jesus did for you. And to the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Ruths and the Bathshebas, God says, become part of my family because of Jesus Christ. Know and receive the blessing that comes only through the Messiah, that comes only through Jesus Christ. Receive the grace that he offers to the lowly and be reminded of his goodness to us today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the verses of your scripture that are easy for us to read past. And I thank you that far from just being a list of names, God, what we're given in Matthew chapter one is tapestry. It's a narrative of family stories. The religious and the pagan, the righteous and the broken, those who in the eyes of the world are acceptable and desirable, and those who in the eyes of the world are rejects. And God, I thank you that you are not a judge of outward appearances, but that you judge the heart. I thank you that you are not one who only redeems the worthy, because if that was the case, there would be no one who knows you, but that you make worthy those whom you save. And God, for the brother or sister in this room who struggles either with self-righteousness and the constant guilt that goes along with it, or the realization of the depth of their sin and the guilt that comes along with that, I pray that both would look to you today as the only one who could take on himself the penalty for our sin, the only one who could absolve guilt, the only one who can remove shame, the only one who can bring healing and reconciliation to what we've inexorably broken. And so God, make much of yourselves in our hearts and our lives and our church today so that we in turn can make much of a wonderful saving God. We thank you for Advent, we thank you for your arrival, and we thank you that we get to celebrate the fact that God himself stepped into time for broken people like us.